Howdy, Ags. Welcome to Aggie Growth Hacks. The podcast is dedicated to helping entrepreneurs improve their business, connect with other Aggie entrepreneurs, and support one another. I'm your host, Greg Martin, Fighting Texas Aggie Class of 2001. And I'm your co-host, Chris Hunter, Fighting Texas Aggie Class of 1998. Well, we got a little story for you, Ags. Keith Alneys, Fighting Texas Aggie Class of 2004, joined us way back in Season 3 to kick off our season. His company, Rumi Spice, is one of the largest spice importers in Afghanistan, impacting the lives of over 100,000 Afghanis. We wanted to bring Keith back so that he can share with you his journey over the last couple of years and to talk about how he hacked the growth of Rumi Spice in a challenging environment, to say the least. So pass it back and listen up to Keith as he shares some really good bull. Welcome back, Ranger Alanis. It is so awesome to have you join us again. Ags, if y'all have not listened to the uh, original interview that we had with Keith way back a couple seasons ago, definitely check it out. Uh, his company, Rumi Spice, I'm going to ask him to maybe share a little bit of the inception story again to, to catch everybody up. But we specifically wanted to bring him back and to talk about his entrepreneurial journey over the last couple of years and kind of where Rumi Spice has gone and where it's grown and then where it's going to in the next couple of years. So Keith, thank you so much for joining us again on Aggie Growth Hacks. Thanks, Greg. It's exciting to be back. Thanks for inviting me. Awesome. Well, we're, we're glad you're here. So how about you How about you take us back to the very beginning, to, to the mountaintop in Afghanistan, where you and a bunch of your crazy peers literally were at war, looked out and decided, hell, I can make a business. So how did that go? Yeah, you know, I, I never anticipated that at this point in my life, I'd be a spice purveyor, you know, getting spices from across the world and, and selling here in the U.S. We've been going for, it was 2014 when we started, you know, when, when we started this journey. And at that time, I had spent, you know, about four years focus on Afghanistan. And I was serving with the military in a program called the Afghan Hands Program, where they had trained us in a cohort of officers and senior enlisted from across services to be experts and regional experts in Afghanistan. They gave us some language training, gave us cultural training, and gave us some specialized training in counterinsurgency. Our mission was to go and work with various organizations and serve as a network within the network, but also provide that long-term perspective on the ground to our commanders, uh, who were oftentimes only there for six to 12 months, as you know, but we were committed to focused on Afghanistan for four years. So we did multiple tours over four years. And I had begun to realize, you know, and as anybody who probably spends a little bit of time in, you know, contingency environments like Afghanistan, like many places in the world, the root causes of instability are economically driven. And it's this lack of economic opportunity that provides the opportunity for insurgents to come in, um, an opportunity for uh, a populace to be just unhappy with their situation. And, and when you're living on the edge of poverty, the life or death decisions become a little bit, you know, easier to make, right? And for, for a lot of reasons, I was I was seeing that this is this is what the root causes of instability is 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 this uh, economic disparity. And at that point, you know, you know, 15 years of international inter intervention had really focused on the urban centers, and not really there's there wasn't much benefit given to the rural po rural population, which comprises 85 percent of the people who live in Afghanistan. So, you know, a, a farmer came up to me and he was telling me his story that I'd grow more saffron if I had a demand or market for my product. And he was just thinking like locally, uh, domestic market and asking for help to do that. And, and you're like, uh, nope, we can do the, the whole world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's when the light bulb clicked for me. You know, I, I got on a Skype call with my friend who I'd served with in the army, Kim and Emily, both I'd served with them in the army and they were both at Harvard Business School at the time. They happened to be in an entrepreneur class. And I was like, well, 
let's this is a, this is an opportunity. Let's see if we can connect this farmer with some restaurants in the U.S. and provide a you know demand. And if we can do that, he'll grow more saffron. If he grows more saffron, he creates more jobs, and maybe we can start this virtuous cycle of you know economic empowerment through this business. And we were really thinking small, but it really you know gained traction quite quickly. We were on NPR. You know, within six months of really like taking our first product to the U.S. and starting to talk about this at various like conferences and stuff, we we landed a spot on NPR. Had no website, had no products. I went to the container store, had my family around a Christmas table, like packing these saffron units, and you know we shipped out like twenty thousand dollars worth of product in the first, you know, first holiday season, and, and it was fantastic. Yeah. But anyway, it's snowballed from there, and, and today we're the largest importer of Afghanistan products. We're sold uh, all over the U.S. in Whole Foods and and like five thousand other stores across the country, and it's. Wow. And, you know, the, the most important thing for me is that our, our mission, we're not really a spice company. Our, our purpose is really to provide sustainable livelihoods for people in Afghanistan. And I'm really proud to say that today we're supporting over 10,000 livelihoods in Afghanistan through our purchases and really through the purchases of our consumers. And it's, you know, not a handout. It's trading value for value. And through those purchases, we're, you know, helping to make a difference in, in you know, across the world. That's so awesome. So let me ask, all right, so the last time that we talked, you had taken more of a, a board of director role, right? Is is that still true? Has that changed? And why? Yeah, so it's a really interesting story, Chris, because uh, I had stepped away from the day-to-day operations. You know, we had sold you know some interest to, to some investors and the entrepreneur journey, of course, it ebbs and flows, right? So I, I, I at, at that time, the last time we talked, uh, not really involved in the day-to-day. Well, in the couple of years since, since we talked last, the Taliban government, the, the Afghan government fell to the Taliban, which, and I can talk about this a little bit more, but uh, paradoxically, like we, we did we, our commercial operations in Afghanistan are, are operating as as good as ever. Uh, we had no effect that the the fall of the government had no effect on what we're doing in Afghanistan. But what it did affect is our uh, one of our investors. You know, they they had to exit their investment just because of the nature of their fund, um, which presented an opportunity presented an opportunity to, to purchase their position. And so I got with a partner and and you know repurchased purchased their shares back and and you know basically acquired the company that I had started. And, uh, you know, with that, I moved into the lead role uh, as CEO and, and I'm back in the day to day. And I've, I've been doing that for the last last six months. But, you know, with everything going on in Afghanistan, with the macroeconomic environment, we really needed to pivot from a company that was just trying to like scale at all costs to a company that's sustainably profitable. It's something that we owe to our investors. But more importantly, it's what we owe to our partners in Afghanistan, because this this isn't a charity, right? We need to be we're not giving them handouts. We also don't want to get handouts. We want to be profitable and sustainable in our own right, because that's what's going to drive, you know, long-term progress for for our partners in Afghanistan. All right, Keith, there's about 18 things that I want to unpack there, but let's, let's start back with, uh, so you, you started the journey, you formed this company, you were in the company, you realized that it needed to grow and any entrepreneur out there knows that growth has a cost. A lot of times that is actual monetary financial cost. If you're going to buy more saffron, import more saffron, then you've got to have cash to be able to pay for that. So you and your your co-founders decided to go about the route of actually selling equity. You sold to a private, a, a couple private equity firms or, or contingent of that. Is that correct? Right. Okay. So you went through the whole pitch process. Obviously, you know, we talked about last time, you know, with the process of being on Shark Tank and and the 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 nuances of that, you know, Hollywood style pitch. Uh, but then you actually went through that process, consummated a, a funding a a, a a round, sold some of your equity, you were diluted, uh, so you had less ownership and and 
uh, also for the good of the company, realizing brought a professional in, ran the company, and then you stepped back in. So that process where you were buying your company back, how was that different from selling your equity to buying the equity? I mean, because that, that's the same side uh, or different sides of the same coin. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit, your experience with that? Yeah. You know, Greg, I've, I've been really interested in this uh, you know, entrepreneurship through acquisition model. And I've been looking into this model for a long time. And, and you know, for, for those who aren't familiar with the model, it's, it's very similar to any kind of M&A, but you know, private equity firms are going to work to on the medium to large business side. And there's this whole gap in the market with small to medium businesses. To answer your question, it, my approach was really from someone who would acquire a company. You know, I, I was intimately familiar with the financials and the operations of the company. So there was a lot of advantages there. It was nothing new um, that I didn't understand. But, you know, I did take the approach. I tried to take the emotion out of it, right? Like, look at the operations, look at the financials and think about what can you do to change things, to add value and essentially get a good deal out of it because you know this is real life real money you know it's it's not uh, you know you, you have to you have to be pretty confident going in that you can you can get a good good value out of it and obviously the social impact is very important to me and my, my sort of purpose in life i feel is is driving impact in, in these kind of ways but at the end of the day I, I need to make sure that this deal works and because i have to get partners to come in to this deal i have to be able to raise money so i really took that so tried to take the emotion off Try to take the ownership off, and then think about the deal from a from an investor as an investor would would think about it, and like what kind of what kind of things can we do to change change the the business model to to start generating cash. So, can you share any any of your big objectives that really did bring oh, yeah. value to you? Sure, and the sure, sure. You know, the the CEO that we had hired had done a great job of building the company and start getting the right pieces in place, but you know, we started to see that things had grown where the costs were just. Uh, unsustainable, you know, op- operational expense given where we are are in our ability to raise raise money. So there was an opportunity to just cut our opex and and uh, reduce that significantly. So my way of looking at it was, okay, what can we cut on opex that won't affect any kind of revenue generating activities? And and how can we, you know, what are we going to give up by doing that? And then even on the revenue generating activity side, like what things are we doing that doesn't have the contribute contribution margin where we probably shouldn't be doing it. So it was it was a process of, for example, I mean, I, to, to be transparent, I can share that like e-commerce, and, and I think people who are, have been running e-commerce uh, companies lately realize that like the the dynamics have changed in e-commerce is very sensitive to shipping costs. Digital advertising costs have gone up, so e-commerce for for our business started you know showing very little contribution margin. In fact, it probably was negative if you put in the overhead and do a fully you know cost loaded model. So. That was that was sort of an easy decision. Like, let's just pull back everything on e-commerce. We're not going to spend any on digital marketing. So you completely exited that that aspect of the business. But we we still sell on e-commerce, but we're not spending any money on marketing. In fact, in the first quarter of this year, okay. we cut our advertising spend by ninety percent. So I mean, our advertising and marketing spend. So everything we do for marketing, we cut it by ninety percent. And so we've had a re- reduction in revenues on that channel, but an increase in profitability. So. You know, that's at the end of the day, that's the name of the game is profitability. You know, similarly, we were able to cut a lot of resources that were like redundant or not as efficient. And, you know, because I knew how to do a lot of stuff, like there's a lot that I could put on my plate. And we're also really leaning forward into leveraging technology. It's a really exciting time. And, you know, everybody's hearing about chat GPT and all this kind of like AI tools. That stuff's been around for a while, but it's, it's very, very much maturing now. So I think there's a real opportunity to fully leverage technology to help drive efficiency in the business. So we, we have done that. And over the last quarter, we've cut our operational expense by 45%. And then we've seen our, our revenues increase by 45%. So I, I think if you'd ask me 
in December, like when this plan was in action, if we would have been so successful, I would have probably said like, oh, I don't know, it might take us a year, but it took us like three months to get to profitability. And, uh, you know, I, congratulations. Good for it you. Just, I just, it, it gives me a lot, of, a lot of confidence to like trust my ability to look at the numbers and, and see that it makes sense. But, you know, also like our team in Afghanistan, our team here has just been doing tremendous amount of work and doing more with less and, and being able to execute, execute our mission. So as a marketer, I have to ask this, right? You, you cut your marketing uh, budget by 90%, right? So where are the sales coming from then? So we operate in, in four, four different channels, uh, retail, wholesale, uh, food service, which are restaurants, and then our direct-to-consumer. Of course, the marketing supports all of those, but a lot of that was geared, geared towards you know this low contribution margin channel, which is e-commerce. So we really just focused the spend that we are doing more on the on the retail side, which we have a pretty good contribution margin. Wholesale doesn't require a lot of marketing spend at this point. And actually we're, we're just very focused on on retail and that's where the bulk of our revenue has been coming from in the in the first couple of months. Interesting. Now let me ask also just kind of as a follow-up on on this where does the social impact you know actually get impacted by by these decisions yeah great question chris so one of the one of the big changes we made is we really pivoted our marketing strategy to emphasize our uh, points of differentiation and our value proposition there's a lot of companies getting spices there's fewer companies getting directly sourced high quality spices and there's very few companies getting directly sourced high quality spices with a laser focus on social impact and so we really wanted to highlight what we're doing in Afghanistan and the impact that we have on people's lives and make that the North Star of, of what we do. And so we're trying to resonate that in our marketing. And I think in that way as well, we, we even though we've cut our sort of digital advertising spend and our marketing spend, we've been able to you know, continue to grow our brand um, with that refocus on, on, the, on the mission. As you've gone through that process, did your company quantify your your values or the things that really drive Rumi Spice? Yes. I, it's interesting when you have like a period of sort of a tough journey with like a turnaround, it kind of forces you to really focus on what's important and what's what, what does your company stand for? So that was healthy in a way to allow us to like recalibrate on our mission to provide sustainable livelihoods in Afghanistan. And then, you know, when you do that, everything else starts coming to light, you know, the marketing strategy, how to pivot that marketing strategy towards focusing on what your North Star is. And then, you know, of course, we look at our consumers and we go out and do some of the tactical stuff like go out and do consumer surveys, see what resonates with them. What is why do they use Rumi Spice? What do they like about us? What do they want to see more about us? Where do they get their information from? Are they going on YouTube? Are they going on Instagram? Like we don't do TikTok. That's really popular now, but our consumers don't, don't use TikTok. You know, so that's the, the people using TikTok aren't buying and cooking spices at home. So yeah, so so I, th I think I think it was really helpful to sort of take those steps to recalibrate what, what we stand for and then, you know, trickle that down through sort of the the consumer research and design thinking and like kind of think about like how do we resonate and, and highlight that value proposition for our consumers. Can you share with us your values? Yeah. Uh, well, the North Star, right? Providing sustainable livelihoods yep. in Afghanistan. And, you know, we stand for high quality spices, but we want to do that by, by driving social impact, you know, and I think we're a small team, right? So we're cultivating this culture garden, as I like to say now with this small group of individuals. But one thing we want people to do is feel connected and proud with the mission that they're on, you know, and, and the journey that they're on. So one thing that we've done is, you know, even like the, the uh, contractors and service providers that are working with us, we bring them in as partners because we want them to feel proud about the work that they're doing too. And, 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 you know, even if you're not a marketing or consumer facing, like you, you still should be proud about the what you're doing and the impact that you're having in Afghanistan. But 
Yeah, I mean, it, it's really about impact. It's about high quality, and it's about transparency and and uh, ethical ethical sourcing, and and that's that's really the key that we want it to resonate through our organization. So let me ask on those: uh, Have those been there from the start, or did y'all fine tune those as you went? along your journey. I feel that this was why I started this business with my partners in 2014. It wasn't to sell saffron. It wasn't to sell spices. It wasn't to like sell to all the best restaurants in the world. It was to cultivate peace in Afghanistan by providing, by catalyzing economic development, by providing a market for Afghanistan products. And so when we think back about like why we started and centered ourselves there, it just became clear that uh, we need to just refocus on the original intent of, of the company. And, and not to say that that ever went away. It just lost its sort of focus and like it, it, it started not being the North Star anymore. And I think that when we lose that, we, we just get lost in all the other companies that are doing directly sourced spices or, you know, ethical sourcing. I mean, and that's, that's like, that's easy to do. I mean, not easy, but and, and there's a lot of people doing that now, but uh, not, not to the extent that we are with a, with a real focus on the impact that we're having on the ground. Keith, that that is so powerful that that North Star, quite frankly, led a significant turnaround in Rumi Spice, probably during what I would say is the most challenging business environment out of any business that we've ever had on Aggie Growth X. It, you know, I mean, no one else operates in a foreign environment that has had war for the last 50 years. And one of the things that you said way back when we had our first interview is we we asked you about the political risk associated with it. And, and it, you know, it's something to the extent of, hey, if the Taliban ever were to come into, into power again in Afghanistan, how does that impact you? And, you know, you basically said, well, it's not going to impact us because you are driving down to the economics of that local farmer. And that local farmer Despite whatever political system is over them, that local farmer is going to fight to make sure that it's not there. And and I mean, and that sounded good, and it was kind of like, oh, that's a good theory. Ha <laughs> ha. Good luck with that. Let's see what really happens. But it, but Keith, it did. It actually did happen, and you're telling you're telling us that that didn't happen. So so tell us a little bit about the story. You know when when that week was happening, and, and we're not going to get all political and go into how the U.S. withdrawal. But during that week, what were your people on the ground telling you? What were they saying? What were you communicating to them? Yeah, it was pretty wild, Greg. Uh, so I, I don't know if I mentioned, but when I left the day to day in uh, Afghanistan, I was working for Google. So I remember sitting in a meeting. And getting texts from my partner in Afghanistan, which we've had a long relationship. So we're still, you know, it still feels very comfortable reaching out. And, and I've been asking, you know, this whole thing was going down, you know, over a relatively short amount, short period of time. So I've been checking in with them, seeing that things are okay. I remember hearing him tell me, you know, the Taliban are at the gates of Herat City. And it was like a week where they were at the gates and there was this standoff, you know, fight at the gates of, of Herat. And I remember him telling me, texting me. Keith, it's over. They're coming. They're over. They're just running through the street. And he couldn't believe it. You know, they're just running through the streets. And that was just so shocking to me that that happened. I didn't, I couldn't, I couldn't believe how quickly like things unfolded. And it was just a few days later, they were marching into, into Kabul and not to get into the military or political aspects of, of that, but it all happened quickly, suffice to say. And we were still trying to run a business, but it was actually fairly quickly after things settled out. And maybe in retrospect, the, the speed at which things kind of fell apart was better than a prolonged like conflict. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't a, but a few months after the Taliban started taking over that the Saffron Union there, and this is a great example how, you know, you provide the right incentives, the private sector, uh, and the, uh, you know, this is how like capitalism can help. 
the Saffron Union there got together and then started talking to the people who were now in charge of the the province and explained to them the situation. Like we got the Saffron Harvest coming up. This is how we operate. When we started this business, also we 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 didn't go there flying an American flag and trying to impart our cultures and values on another country. We existed within their cultural norms, allowed them to run their business as they saw fit. So you know, in terms of uh, complying with all the cultural norms in Afghanistan, our businesses there that we work with, like they did, you know, they wasn't, they weren't doing anything, you know, out of the ordinary. So, you know, they advocated, the union advocated for the industry, you know, with the new people. And, and it's in no one's, and, and this is why I said, you know, years ago that nothing would happen because it's in no one's best interest for that, that the agricultural industry and saffron industry in particular, in that particular area to do, to do poorly. So everybody wants it to succeed. So, I mean, we've, we've just seen that, that because of that uh, has, has gone without disruption and, and, and I don't want to say, you know, as someone who's been on the business end of Taliban weapons, right? Like I have no sort of good feelings about the Taliban and they're doing horrible things to the way they're treating women in the country. And, and we're all hopeful that that changes. We're, we're trying to, you know, advocate for that change through, through our example and the way that we hire women in our processing centers. With all that said, the government's running more efficiently than I had anticipated. And we, we deal with the government in terms of getting documents and customs and, you know, not directly, but, you know, when, I'm, I'm frankly surprised that there's there's not really a hiccup in sort of the day-to-day functions of, of government. It, it runs just like it has always. So it's 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 a functioning government for for all for you know, all intents and purposes. Wow, that's pretty awesome. We're gonna pause here for a message from our sponsor. And that's good good to hear because that's one of the things that Greg and I have talked about over the past couple of years. Is I wonder how how Keith is doing, you know, with, uh, with everything. And especially in light of what was it in July, right. Of a couple months after, after our episode uh, came out here, it seemed like that's about when it happened. We're like, Oh, I wonder how that's happening. So that's, it's definitely good to hear that, that there wasn't really any hiccups, you know, with the operations. So are there any lessons that you've learned since our last interview as an entrepreneur? Is there something that 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 you can share with our audience? So so many things, Chris. I feel like I'm getting like a second swing at the plate, you know. And I was uh, just talking to my co-founder, and and things just seem a lot easier because you kind of know what you did wrong before, like what you could do better going forward. And well, I mean, I, I can name a bunch of specific things, but I think one thing in particular is that, as I said, like focusing on the North Star was very important for us, but also cascading down from that North Star, like defining what our objectives are as a business that support that North Star vision. And then, you know, cascading that down to what, how do we get to those objectives? What are the key results that are going to help us meet those objectives? Because there's a lot of shiny objects out there and it, and you can only do so much with the resources that you're given. You need to focus on the most impactful things that you can be doing right now or the things that are going to set the stage for a longer term and greater impact that are strategic later on down the line. And that's really helped us focus our effort of our small team on the things that matter. And it's shown up right away in the financials much, much sooner than I, I thought it would. So we've gone through a very deliberate process of developing our OKRs and, and, it, and it, our objectives and key results. Um, and, you know, that's kind of a lesson that I've learned from Google, but it's a uh, uh, really allowed us to focus our energies and develop an operating plan that supports our North Star vision, but also provides the financial results that we need to show our investors and you know you know external stakeholders so that we can continue to to grow. So so as you're doing that, Keith, what what I heard is that you took something that's very altruistic, you know, a very warm and fuzzy North Star, and you were able to by clear communication and deliberate action, 
drill that into every part of the business, administrative, marketing, finance, supply chain, everything. And as a result, because of that, because you are laser focused, you know who you are, you know who your customers are, and you're able to communicate that value to the customer that that is that that fuzzy North Star is translating into tangible cash to, to real financial results, which then you're going to be able to use to further the business down the road. So at as you did that, did you have to have difficult conversations with your team? Like, was there, obviously, I don't want you to get anything, any specific, but like, did you have to say you're, you might be the right person, but you're in the wrong seat or you're not the right person to be on this bus anymore. So let's, let's f- help you find someplace else. Exactly. Greg. We, we, I mean, those, those conversations had to be had and, and, you know, we, we did make 45% reduction in our operational expense. And so that, of course, implies that, you know, that that's, that's some people that were uh, supporting us that are no, no longer there. But and not to say that they didn't do a great job, and they weren't the right person at that time. But the direction that we were going, it, it no longer made sense for, you know, that resource or that person to be working in that. And sometimes that was people that were on the team. Sometimes that was contractors that were supporting. Um, it's got to be one but, of the hardest uh, things of leadership, though, right? It's tough. It's really tough, you know, and, and uh, those are sometimes tough conversations. But oftentimes, like, I, I feel that people are doing the best job in the situation that they're, you know, they're out there, out there trying to, you know, doing, doing what they think is right. And I was really happy with everybody's performance. So it's just the direction that we needed to go didn't make sense. So, and, you know, I'm happy to, like, in a lot of cases, uh, see that those folks go on to, you know, do other, you know, bigger and better things and move into other companies and help them find other, other uh, opportunities. And, and so I'm pretty happy to say that, for, you know, that it, it seems like everybody who has left our team has found a, another great place and been able to take the experience they had with our small and growing startup and apply them to, you know, in many cases, other companies or bigger companies, which I think is, is, is fantastic. So you hit on this earlier a little bit, uh, but I'd like to kind of dig into it. You were talking about um, AI and chat GPT and, and really leveraging technology. Obviously as a marketing agency, we, we have to, you know, my, my company has to be on the forefront of, of all of that because it's just how how it is and we've been digging really hard into chat gpt and bard and and you know all these other you know and bing's tools as well how do you plan to leverage leverage ai for roomy spice yeah i'm very excited about like where ai is going and and um these large language models and i'll tell you with like chat gpt and bard i think that where that's immediately immediately useful for me is that you know, as a as a CEO, I do a lot of context switching. I'm working on an operations model, like nonlinear programming kind of thing, and then I have to go and write an email. You know, asking for you know, I don't know, whatever, you know, or I have to write some kind of prose for something. Or <laughs> so it's hard for me to context switch like that every day. And I I really leverage like those large language models to help me just think creatively about things and t- sort of like set the stage to help me start switch switching my mind frame to doing something totally different, which. It's a small thing, but it, it's it's time that you spend like spinning wheels uh, throughout the day to try to move from one task to another, which is kind of inevitable as a CEO. But what's really exciting to me is the operational efficiencies we can drive with uh, AI and machine learning. So, you know, many businesses, big and small, have uh, the problem of like having siloed data or data in different spreadsheets here or there, systems that don't talk to each other. You know, we do too, but the best time to solve that is when you're small. 
and it's almost impossible to solve when you're big and it's huge and costly, you know, implementation to, to put anything into, into place once the company's, you know, reaches, reaches, you know, a lot of different people. Uh, so I, I'm really focused on uh, driving operational efficiency by getting all our different data sources into the data warehouse. And it's, it's stuff that we couldn't really do because it was so time consuming to do manual. And for, for example, right, like we have the data to see what our turns are on the shelves, you know, relatively, relatively detailed data on how we're turning on the shelves. And then ideally you're taking that forecast that's driving a demand plan that's driving your operational plan, like, you know, six to 12 months down the line. Well, that that was just such a long process to do manually that we couldn't really integrate that into our operational plan. And what that causes that the working capital that we tied up in inventory was enormous. So we have all this working capital just sitting on a, on a shelf somewhere and not being used to like, you know, fund, you know, resourcing or, or advertising or anything like that. So by some simple sort of consolidation of data and integrating data sources, we're able to look at our forecasts and plan out demand six months down the line and make more efficient decisions on our inventory purchases, wow. make efficient decisions on which SKUs are not performing well that we need to like just eat the cost and like SKU rationalize, as they say. And we're able to do that through AI and machine learning. And, and we're constantly trying to like improve and, and do more and more of that. So I'm really excited where we're going to be six months from now. And I mean, the with with what we've done in AI so far, that's really helped drive that forty five percent reduction in opex. And it's 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 really going to you know, if we if if not for what we're going to build with, we we work on the Google Cloud service. But if not for what we're going to build, we would have had to add like many more resources and keep scaling our keep scaling our opex proportional to our growth. But now now we're going to be able to scale our growth without having to scale our opex because we're going to automate a lot of the workflows that require people to to execute the best. That is so cool of using current technology that that you understand, but leveraging it in ways to support you and your business and, and have you grow through that. So Keith, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Before before we leave, I've got two questions. I want to find out what is your BHAG now? Uh, ha- has it changed? And, and then also after you tell us that, tell us how the Aggie Growth Hacks family can continue to get in touch with you? How can we support you? How can we encourage you? How can we help? But first your BHAG. Okay, the BHAG. I've got I've got a good one, Greg. And I, I think that this is achievable and it and it and it definitely, but it does sound audacious. So within five years, we're gonna go from ten thousand livelihoods supported in Afghanistan to a hundred thousand. And there's a I mean, I there's a roadmap for that. And I think where it gets audacious is that I fully expect that in 10 years we can affect and support one million lives in Afghanistan. And we're really moving the needle at that point if we can support that many lives through through our purchases. That's that's fantastic. So how how can we come alongside, uh, connect with you, and encourage and support you with that? Yeah, uh, I, everybody check us out on uh, Instagram. We put a lot of great content out there. Rumi underscore spice. You can go to our website rumispice.com. And you know, if if anybody wants to reach out to me, you can you can reach out. You can get me on on Instagram or through the through the website. I'm I'm always happy to talk to to Aggies and, uh, you know, happy to have the support of the Aggie network. Well, thank you so much, Keith, for coming on and, and really sharing all of your knowledge uh, with the Aggie entrepreneur community. We we all really, really appreciate it and really wish you well as you move forward. Thanks, Chris. It's a pleasure being on. It's a lot of fun. Well, how about that, Ags? Was that pretty cool or what? As our only interviewee that we've brought back on as you know, to, to catch up with them and really find out, you know, how he, how he's doing and, and how Rumi Spice is doing. I know that I had a lot of takeaways from it. What was your biggest takeaway there, Greg? 
Well, he talked about so much, and I really appreciate how open and honest he was uh, with this through his entire entrepreneurial journey. You know, I I was really just struck by his tenacity and his leadership of what it really takes to realize, hey, as one of the founders, to be able to step back in, to be able to go through the whole mergers and acquisition process on the other side, and to to take some of the emotion out of it, and to say, okay, here are the things that I think that we can do in order to bring value and then to be able to execute on that. Uh, I think that the one of the things that was most common throughout all of his discussion was the fact that they had to recalibrate what their north star what is what is the what is their vision of doing good or you know what, how he kind of encompassed his values and to be able to see that and then to realize that that is trickling down and having a positive effect on the bottom line, I'm obviously a numbers guy. And so knowing that something that you operate your company by, and then it impacts the bottom line and helps him to be more profitable so that he can be more sustainable so that he can do what his BHAG is and impact not a hundred thousand Afghanis, but a million Afghanis. And that is going to be so cool to see him accomplish that. What about you, Chris? So mine was very, very similar to that, you know, in, in regards to the North Star, but I think really drilling down into his marketing, right? And and figuring out mm-hmm. what's working and not working was really crucial to, you know, figuring out, hey, e-commerce isn't really how we're generating our revenue, right? But yet that's what our biggest spend is on. So why not why don't we cut back on that and, and double down on on retail, right? And I think yep. that honestly, even coming from a marketer, you know, we on a constant basis are constantly looking at each channel, what's working, what's not working, right? Kind of a thing. But taking it from a bird's eye standpoint of saying, well, e-commerce isn't really driving that much business, but yeah, we're spending, you know, a vast majority of our expenses on that. Let's cut back on that. That's not working. So I kind of liked that. And I, I liked how he was talking about how, you know, they incorporated more of their North Star, their why they're, they were doing everything, right? And that's very reminiscent to me of Start With Why by Simon Sinek, right? Mm -hmm. Where he talks about, you know, the best companies in the world really start with why and work outwards to what and then how, right? How they do things. So I think he he's performed awesome as far as that goes on on that. And that's really struck me as my biggest takeaway. Mm-hmm. And I, I love how he was able to translate that North Star. And I think he was saying beforehand, they shifted and as a result, their retail, they're, they're almost doubling the amount of stores yeah. that they were in uh, for Whole Foods. Yeah. And so that was pretty cool. And then, and then also I, I appreciate your conversation or your thoughts around the, the chat GPT and, and how that also played into his marketing roles and, and his finance role projections as well. Yeah. And it seems like the, the finance role is, is really going to have more of an effect you know, with anything. And that's something that, you know, entrepreneurs out sitting out there, you know, and, and we're, we're talking right now, we're recording this in, in May, this is going to drop in, in July, you know, chat GPT is changing on a daily basis. So, I mean, literally, you know, from one day to the next, you're like, whoa, they're now doing this and, and kind of a thing. So AI in general has really come on strong in the past six months and leveraging it as a technology has been something that I have been focused on for the past six months, you know, on how we can get efficiency, you mm-hmm. know, um, down with our staff as well as everything that we do, you know, and and not leveraging it completely, 
but at the same time figuring out okay well how can how else can we use this you know technologies it's 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 really a fascinating time you know and and if you are open to learning about it Mm -hmm. and open to applying it yeah. Then I mean Keith said, look, we're we're gonna be able to scale a lot more with the same operational spend yeah. than before. So that's I mean, that that's real meaningful. Yes. I mean, not just dollars and cents, that's actually you achieving your goals faster. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it in the early uh nineties, right, we were being told about this technology that Walmart had. Right, that Walmart knew, you know, what their stock was, and they knew exactly when to order and and stuff like that. What he was talking about is exactly that, you know, except for a small business versus having, you know, huge chain of retail stores. Yeah, ha- having to invest billions of dollars in your supply mm-hmm. chain. Yeah, management. I mean, it's I I expect to fully expect it's probably going to ten x his company just by using <laughs> using that technology yeah. to figure that out. Right, so that's pretty 100%. cool. Yeah. Well, Alex, that's going to do it for this episode of Aggie Growth Hacks. We hope that you enjoyed it. If you're not connected with Keith and Rumi Spice, make sure you go to Instagram. That's where he said that they live the most. But also know that Keith is very, uh, very active on LinkedIn. So if you are um, an entrepreneur or you want to get into the Spice game, you want to just talk business, make sure that you connect with with Keith there. Uh, while you're there, make sure that you connect with Chris, you connect with me, uh, connect with Aggie Growth Hacks. And if you haven't done so, make sure you hit subscribe on this podcast, on whatever podcast platform you're listening to, give us a big Aggie thumbs up and make sure you share and comment so that we can get this podcast out to more Ags. Absolutely. And be sure to go to our Facebook group as well as AggieGrowthHacks.com where you can listen to previous episodes and check out some of our other content. Well, that's going to do it, Ags, for our 99th episode. Join us next time on our 100th episode when we connect with another great Aggie entrepreneur and learn how to hack their growth. Until then, I'm Chris Hunter. And I'm Greg Martin. Thanks and gig them.